This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Listen to God's word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This morning, I'll talk about a subject that makes everyone in this room particularly uncomfortable. Now, in most churches, that would be a very difficult task. wouldn't be a very difficult task. However, at City Church, we have a pastor who loves to talk about toe-curling intimacy and fountains and flowing cisterns. And so you've been appropriately desensitized. Nevertheless, what I'm going to talk about this morning will still be very uncomfortable for most of you. And the topic that we'll be discussing this morning is evangelism. I don't want you to get up. I don't want to leave. I don't want you to use the bathroom. But I want you to hang in there with me and work with me on this. Why does the subject of evangelism make us so uncomfortable? Well, one is the impact of Christian fundamentalism. Now, Christian fundamentalism is when the grace of God and his riches and mercies is traded in to a strict adherence to a code of ethics, where that's where we find good standing before our loving Heavenly Father. And many of us experience the ugly side of Christian fundamentalism, well-meaning but judgmental Christians telling you you're going to go to hell, complete strangers walking up with you and using a clipboard as a means to talk about a survey, which is a means to, uh, to dump a canned presentation of the gospel at you when they don't even know you. My personal favorite is the fake $20 bill that's actually a little track that tells you about Jesus, which some Christians feel compelled to give you as a tip instead of offering your, the waiter or the waitress a real tip. Now, we've seen and felt and experienced the pressure and the arrogance and the performance. And whether you're a Christian or not in this room, you want nothing to do with that. You want to distance yourself from Christian fundamentalism to any degree that you can. And if that has been your experience, I want to apologize on behalf of the church. But there's another force at play that makes evangelism very uncomfortable for all of us in this room. That's called secular humanism. And secular humanism has led to a cultural environment where no one has the truth. We begin to ask ourselves, who am I to tell anyone anything? And then we begin to ask others, well, who are you to tell me anything or what's right or wrong? And it's not rare to hear those outside the church say, all right, it's okay for you to believe in Jesus. I'm so glad Christianity is helpful to you as well. Just don't try to convert anyone. It's good for you, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily good for me. Now, when someone says that, what they're really saying is, I do not believe in the divinity and the necessity of Jesus. He can't be who he says he is, king of the universe and savior, the one who's died for all our sins and has brought a power to change the world. Now, if he were 
that, then I'd have to tell everyone myself. It'd be a crime not to tell people about this Jesus who's Savior and King. It'd be like finding the cure of AIDS and not taking to the continent of Africa or the subcontinent of India where it's raging. It's, it's another way of saying my cosmology or worldview is right or at least better than yours, and you should adopt mine and abandon yours, which then begs the question, who's more narrow-minded, the Christian or the secular humanist? I'd say both are narrow-minded. Both are holding tightly to held, tightly held religious views, and if you take a few minutes, you'll see that everyone in this world is proselytizing. The moment you say, don't hold your religious view, you are proselytizing. So for all proselytizing this morning, ah. so for all proselytizing this morning, it would behoove us that maybe we should find out what cosmology is worth proselytizing, what cosmology is worth giving our lives to and being an advocate for. This morning, we're going to look at the early church in Acts chapter 4 and how it worked out its cosmology. And now how not only how that cosmology was beginning to change them, but the world through them. And so we're going to do it by looking at three things this morning. The call to witness, the obstacles to witness, and the power of witness. First, the call to witness. Even though the story we're picking up on starts with Peter and John running to their friends with threats, the story begins in Acts chapter 1, where the resurrected Jesus shows up before his disciples, and he says this, But you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus shows up to his friends, and he empowers them, he teaches them, and trains them. And back from the book of Isaiah, it has always been God's design for his people to be his witnesses to the nations. And that's what was happening. And Jesus commanded them to wait until his Holy Spirit came upon them to empower them for this very task. For those of you who do city Bible reading, you'll remember that we read Matthew 28 this week. Here Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the charter for the church of Jesus Christ, to be witnesses of his grace and kindness and mercy, to be witnesses to his kingdom that changes everything and restores the world and makes it whole. So the church did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They waited. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit show up, and they begin to witness, testify to his kindness and grace. Peter preaches a sermon, and the church goes from about 100 plus to 3,000. And this new church devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching, the loving one another, and taking care of each other's needs. And the Lord adds to their number daily. In that new power, in that new spirit, Peter and John begin to perform miracles and they begin to preach, again, to witness in the temple. The elders and the chief priests arrest them and question them in Acts chapter 4. Again, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to witness to the very men that crucified Jesus. So Peter and John, they were threatened. They, They were released And they were scared. They were terrified. And so they went and found their friends, and they gathered together because the mission was being threatened. Their lives, their occupation, their loved ones, everything was being threatened. And they still had memories of what was done to their king and their leader, Jesus, in their imagination. So they prayed. You can look at their prayers. The key word here, servant. They remembered how David was God's servant in verse 25. In verse 27, they remember how Jesus is God's servant. And then they remember 
that they are God's servants in verse 29. They understood that their mission was to be witnesses to the nations of God's kindness and mercy. And the only thing they asked for was boldness in that mission. Is this you? If your life was written into a story, would the key word of your story be witness? Is being a witness, testifying to God's kindness and mercy to you, is that the mission of your life? Do you gather together with your friends to pray over that which threatens to take you off mission? Sadly, for most of us in this room, being a witness to the kindness of our king has gone from a reality to rhetoric. So we know most of us are already aware of this call to be witnesses. So what are these obstacles to be a witness? Well, if you look at the church in Acts, they had one primary obstacle, the threats from the chief, chief priests and elders. They saw the potential loss of income, jobs, loved ones, and lives, which eventually happened for almost all of them in that room. But what about us? What, what threatens us? What, what's the obstacle to us being witnesses, joyful witnesses of God's grace and kindness? Well, first of all, there's consumerism. Christianity has become a commodity. Consumerism in the church is the air we breathe. It's less about his kingdom, his glory, his grace, and where I can best serve. And it's more about our felt needs and whether this particular body can deliver. Think about how not just me, but all of us vet churches we think about music, style, genres, and feel. We think about children's ministry. Can I outsource my child's spiritual development in a way that's meaningful here, recognizing that when you take away snack and all the other stuff, there's maybe about 10 minutes worth of content given. It was a sermon. Was it expository? Was it practical? Did it make me feel good? People, are there people like me in this room? Like, that's ever been a good reason to be part of something. And then there's services. You know, is this, does this church have a women's Bible study? Because if I don't have a women's Bible study, I'm just not going to do well with Jesus. This is called consumption. And when you move into a new town, what do you do? You go church shopping. We actually even use those phrases. The question we ask first is, can this church meet my needs? Rarely do vet churches by asking, will this church equip me to worship the God of grace and be a witness to his graciousness and kindness? At the end of the day, whether we realize it or not, when we show up in a faith community, we want to be catered to. We want to be encouraged as we pursue the American dream. We want the power without the cost. There's consumerism, but then there's also comfort. Our desire for comfort and ease often drives every decision-making process in most churches. Thankfully, for some reason, that is not a core value at City Church. Typically, churches can be risk-adverse, and we fight to keep the status quo. We long to have the approval of others and friendships. And most churches were way too comfortable, which is what we precisely worship. We're not challenged to repent, change our lives, or live for the king and his kingdom. In a lot of ways, the church of Jesus Christ in North America has become much like the prophet Jonah. If you remember from City Bible reading, we saw the story of Jonah. And what struck me particularly is the end of the story There he left the city after he preached, and they were trying to repent. He sits up on a hilltop, and he looks over the city. And God's east winds, his judgment winds, are beginning to blow on him and the entire city. And so Jonah makes a little hut so he can watch what's happening, but he's miserable because he's so hot. And God grows up a plant to cover him and provide him shade and relief and comfort. And he's enjoying that plant. He falls in love with that plant. The next day, God kills the plant, and Jonah's angry. He's miserable. He's frustrated that God would destroy that plant. And God makes a point that's really not so subtle. 
is which is Jonah, you care more about the destruction of this plant that provides you comfort than 120,000 people that live in this wicked city. You see, God has compassion for these evil inhabitants, and he wants to transform them. He wants them to be released from their sin. He wants them to enjoy God's grace, and Jonah's more concerned about the plant that was providing him shade. Metro Orlando has over 2 million people, and maybe 10% know Christ. But a greater problem to us, more than our comfort and more than our consumerism, is our lack of compassion. At the end of the day, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us don't want to do evangelism or be a witness. To be honest, most of us just don't care. For many of us, it's become a duty or an obligation or merely a regular source of guilt that we try to disengage from. Which me speaks to a bigger problem. When evangelism is a duty, it's a symptom of a greater problem. Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that it's the love of Christ that compels us. It's his kindness and grace that works us out from thinking about ourselves and feeling us with compassion and mercy for others. And if the gospel is not propelling us out, maybe we've lost sight of the kindness of God and his mercy. If we're not burning to testify, to witness to God's grace, maybe it's our hearts have grown cold. See, a key to a life of vibrant witness is a vibrant walk with God. And the lack of witness, heartfelt, gracious, joyful, winsome witness, is a sign that we've lost sight of the grandness of Jesus and the wealth of his grace. Preparing for the sermon's been brutal. Not because I haven't been getting much sleep. Not because I went away on a staff retreat. Not because before that I was in Indian Africa for two weeks. None of that made it brutal. What made it brutal is although I have periods in my life where I've been a, a grand witness for God's kingdom, there's no active witness in my life right now. I have no friends outside this church. And I have not fought to make this a reality where I am being a witness to God's grace and kindness I do not want to think about the implications of my lack of witness. I do not hate this reality enough, and I would rather hide in what I'm doing well than look at the fact that I am cold to the kindness of God and it is not evident in my life. What about you? What has choked out the burning flame of God's grace in your heart? What do you hide in to avoid the deeper issues of God's grace work in your life and propelling and compelling you out to be kind for him? What keeps you from taking this step head on and beginning a life for repentance? There is much hope for us because not only are we called to be witness, and yes, there are obstacles to witness. There is much power for witness. The church was threatened, and what do they do? They, they prayed. It was simple. They knew they did not have the power in themselves to take on this threat. They were paralyzed with fear, and they knew there was only one person that could take away this fear. And so this invitation for us to pray as well, and I think we can learn a tremendous amount from their rich prayers. First of all, it was corporate. They prayed together. The very thing they did when they saw that they were unequipped to deal with this threat is they banded together. In verse 23, they prayed. Secondly, it was God-centered. They are absorbed in praise and worship of God for who he is. They are more focused on him than their own needs and requests. This particular prayer focused on God's sovereignty and might, but they worshiped God for who he was. 
Third, it was full of scripture. They were using the promises and the declarations of God's word to guide their prayer. They were beginning to understand their story in the light of God's story. The scriptures were not something they were reading, but the scriptures were reading them. They began to identify themselves with Jesus and his story, and it changed everything for him. This is why city Bible reading, I think, is so crucial for our church Because as we're reading the scriptures together and praying together, it begins to read us, inform us, and shape us in community. The thing I love about their prayer is not only was it full of scripture, it was a process. They came to realizations as they prayed. They began to have new unity as they prayed. God was working on them during their time of prayer. And finally, they sought the presence and glory of God, not just a change in circumstances. And I want to be clear, it's not wrong to pray for a change in circumstances. But what's beautiful to me is that's not what they prayed for. What they prayed for was the presence of God, the power of God, the fullness of God. What they knew they needed more than anything else was God himself. And so what happened? Well, there's the window dressing. The room shook. And let me tell you, that's pretty exciting stuff. I would love to be in a prayer meeting where the room starts shaking. You know, that, that would be awesome, right? But, but that's not the point. What's the substance of this passage? The very thing they asked for was the very thing God gave them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and had boldness in witness. This is not simple prayer, but desperate children praying for power, for the Holy Spirit to work, and that's the very thing the Holy Spirit did. It reminds me of Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So the kingdom of God is about power, power that raises us from the dead, power that changes our hearts, power that changes communities, power that makes things as they ought to be, power in restoring, uniting all things to Jesus himself. And God's kingdom power is available for the asking. What about us? Many of us in this room stopped believing the power of God a long time ago. And when we stop believing in the power of God, we stop praying as well. I want to tell you about a trip I took with my friend Henry. A couple years ago, we went to India together, and Henry's quite assertive. He does not see walls. He does not see boundaries. And from the beginning and the end of our trip, all I saw was obstacles, and all he saw was opportunities. For example, we get to the airport, and our flight's delayed, and we'd miss the connection to get to Newark, which is a fine destination, by the way, and then to go to India. And we were like, oh, no, we're going to miss our continental flight. What are we going to do? No worries. Henry starts talking with the manager. 30 minutes later, we're on a British Airways flight, flying directly from Raleigh-Durham to uh, where we're supposed to head. And it was fantastic. We were on a better airline with better service, thanks to Henry. The whole trip went like that. My favorite example of this is when we, when we got to Heathrow, I think. Yeah, it was, it was Raleigh-Durham to Heathrow to Mumbai. The worst thing about never do this when you fly international is changing flights somewhere in Europe because they give you like a 90-minute window. You're running with your carry-on, and you have to like depart from your plane, go through a maze, get into a bus that takes you to another terminal, only go through another maze to have to go through security again. So you're practically disrobing yourself to get re-robed to then maybe make it to your gate. Well, we were going through this harrowing process, and there we were. We were realizing we're going to miss our flight. And if you've ever been in those security lines, those little fake nylon little fence things, right? And it's just like a maze of them. He just started disconnecting them and walking to the front. I'm like, you know what you're going to do? You're going to get shot. And I realized as a South Asian, I would get shot, you know? 
you know, sleepy hair, stubble face. He's seen the mug shots of 9-11. I mean, there's a sniper waiting for that very moment for me. Henry goes forward. Next thing you know, he's escorted to the front of the line, then escorted to the gate, and he holds the plane door open for us. Now, I got back from the trip, and I began to see that I live in prisons. I have made prisons for myself. Where Henry saw opportunities, I only see walls. When I get to the extent of my power and my ability to change a situation, I assume I am stuck in that situation, and so I make friends with that situation. I get comfortable. This is the limit to what I'm going to experience of this world. My latest trip to India, I was introduced to a new guy I like to meet and hopefully call my friend. His name is Raj. Raj, like Henry, does not see walls, but opportunities for the power of God to work. Raj was born as a Dalit, meaning he was in the lowest caste possible in India, and his childhood is full of pain. Uh, When he was in school, in the small little village school building, he had to sit in the bottom left-hand corner because that's where the Dalits had to. No matter how well he did in his schoolwork, he was constantly failed because he would not bribe the teachers in his school. He was not allowed to drink from the well that was in the center of the town. And one day at school, and dying of thirst, no one offered him water. He tried to touch the well water, and he was beaten by the headmaster severely for doing so. And when he began to want to improve his situation, and he wanted to read the Hindu sacred scriptures, he sat one day outside and began reading, only to have a high-caste Brahmin walk up to him and say, you defiled these scriptures by touching them and reading them. And then he threatened him, if you ever read this again, I will burn down your house, and we will rape the women of your house. This was the childhood he had. To escape this, to find a sense of power and permanence, he turned to the Communist Party and became a a leader, a commander of a communist brigade. And that's how he found life and protection for him and his family. Thankfully, one of his communist comrades came to Christ and began to understand there's a God that has given him dignity and worth because he's created in God's image. And that God died for him on the cross and forgave him of sins and lives to renew him and through him the world. And he needed to know about this Jesus, and he became a Christian. Now, after he became a Christian, he felt the sense, this call to be a minister. And so he heard about this institute in the middle of Delhi, the major city of India. And he went there, and he said, hey, can I be a gardener here? I just want to learn more about Jesus. So the director of the institute is like, Sure. Gave him a job as a gardener, and about three weeks later, he said, hey, there's this preaching course. Why don't you try it out? Raj, by far, was the best student in the class. So they fast-tracked him from gardener to primary student, and three years later, they sent him to one of the primary, most darkest northern cities of India. In two years, he helped start 70 churches, and he started an institute in the middle of that city, training and resourcing pastors for those 70 churches. Then they asked him to go to another primary dark location in northern India, and he's repeating the process all again. I think he's already up to 12 or 15 churches. And then as I I heard of Raj's story, he said, you know what I want to give my life to? There's 10 major cities in north India. Maybe God be gracious to me, allow me to plant church planting institutes that start churches in all 10 of the major cities. Raj does not see walls, but opportunities for the power of the gospel. Raj is a witness to the power of the gospel. Raj does not see barriers or opportunities in his weakness to see the power of God at work. Jesus, in this passage, is inviting you to be a witness to his power. I want to say this clearly. 
it is not easier to plant churches in North India. It's easier to plant churches in Orlando, Florida. We want to dismiss stories about Raj and people like Raj because it's easier to dismiss him than dismissing our unbelief. What did Jesus die to do for you? Jesus died on the cross and was rose again. Why? To give you new life, to change your heart, to renew you, and to create a new being out of you. He changed, he died on the cross, not only to forgive your sin, but to change the power of sin in your life and to make you one day totally like him, even sharing in his glory and his fame. Jesus died to renew you, that right now you would taste his mercy and kindness, but not only taste his kindness and mercy, but be a conduit of his kindness and mercy. Jesus died to make you breathtaking like he is breathtaking. Jesus died to use you to renew the world and to taste and see how he's the first fruit of the world changing and let you participate in every aspect of that. What the church in Acts invites us to do is to settle for nothing less. What the church in Acts is inviting you to see that anything that threatens our mission to be witnesses is a mere obstacle that the power of God can undo if we would gather together corporately and pray for his presence and his power. What the church in Acts invites us to do is to pray for nothing less than the fullness of God's kingdom and his glory and his spirit's presence in our lives. The only thing keeping us from knowing and experiencing the power of God is our lack of prayers. And finally, as we sell for nothing less and pray for nothing less, the church in Acts invites us to watch the world change literally in front of us. Not because we're great, not because we have anything to offer, because Jesus is wonderful and breathtaking, and he gives us everything to accomplish the mission that he's given us. Remember Matthew 28, he is always with us. Remember Acts 1.8, he gives us his power and his Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of talk, but it's the power of God. And friends, we have it. And let's settle for nothing less. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for reaching walls and boundaries and making friends with those walls and boundaries. Forgive us for not living in belief that you have died and risen to make us new and in that newness to give us power to do your bidding and to do the chore, give us power to do the chores you've given us. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see Jesus, the lover of our souls, our King, and help us to follow him. Help us now to see that we have your Holy Spirit. Help us to see your kindness and mercy and your willingness to give us everything. In so doing, Lord, help us as a church to pray together, to know your kindness and mercy to know your power, that we might see the world change before us. We pray all this in Jesus, his blessed name. Amen.